Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information and to donate online, go to 3cr.org.au. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. I got something I want to talk about to you. This is Communication Mixdown. Hello, I'm John Langer. And maybe tonight we should be subtitling the show, Who Do You Trust? Because both our guests this week are looking into the issue of trust as it applies to users of online information. Adrian Camilleri is lecturer and he researches in the area of marketing and consumer psychology at the University of Technology, Sydney. And he's been investigating whether we should trust online reviews when making some kind of purchasing decisions. Welcome to Communication Mixdown. Thanks for having me. Now, you say that consumer reviews online can be hugely influential in your, our decision-making uh, when it comes to making all kinds of purchases. But you also say that because of this, it's not surprising to find that there's a whole industry out there pumping out fake reviews. I just wanted to know, to start with, how extensive are these online fake reviews? And give us a few examples. Uh, well, it depends uh, which source you read. I've seen estimates of uh, 10% of reviews being fake. Some estimates suggest that maybe a third of reviews on TripAdvisor might be suspicious. And then there's even some suggestions that uh, certain categories on Amazon might have more than half of their reviews. Uh, being questionable. So uh, great diversity there. It definitely depends on which category you're looking at. And, uh, you know, there's great motivation for businesses to hire these fraudsters because consumers put so much weight and importance on online reviews. So you're saying uh, in, on some Amazon sites or uh, on Amazon, nearly 50% of, of the reviews could be fake. In certain categories, that's been the suggestion, particularly uh, electronics. This seems to be one that uh, draws in uh, more fakes than other categories. Right. Adrian, this is very interesting because I'm glad you're saying this because I'm just I'm, – I'm right now in the market for buying a new computer, uh, a laptop, and uh, I'm just wondering <laughs> whether I should read those reviews or not. <laughs> I mean, I definitely encourage you to read the reviews, and uh, there's some advice that I can give you on how to detect the, the fake ones from the genuine ones. And I'd also direct you to certain websites that can help do this as well. So a website called reviewmeta.com as well as uh, fakebot.com. They allow you to paste in the URL address of the product that you're considering, and the software behind these websites actually scans all of the reviews and all of the profiles of the reviewers and spits out what it thinks uh, might be a more genuine score. Now, your research that you're doing, you've discovered that uh, we're, we're not terribly good at distinguishing genuine reviews from fake reviews, and you've just mentioned it. How do you spot 
a fake review? What would be the signs? Well, you're right there. Most people are very poor at detecting fake reviews. In general, people are poor at detecting lies, regardless of whether they're reviews or not. But uh, there are some telltale signs that consumers can look out for. So uh, with regards to the review itself, often fake reviews are short, they're poorly written, they're very one-sided, and they tend to focus on product details, things that the fraudster can just look up online without having the actual product. You can also look at the profile of the reviewer. So the profile tends to be uh, very sparse in terms of information. So it's an unverified profile with very few reviews. Most likely the profile was created relatively recently. So those are some of the, the signs that consumers can look out for. Interesting. And in your research, uh, you surveyed about 1,400 Australians about their trust in online reviews and their confidence in telling a genuine review from a fake review. What were some of the findings that you you discovered in your research? What were some of the significant findings? Yeah, so the, the study was fairly consistent with other surveys that have been conducted in the U.S. and Europe, which is people put a lot of faith into reviews. They are trusted to the same extent that we would trust our friends and family, or even experts and critics. And uh, as a result, they, they are often sought out. Most people in the survey reported looking for online reviews in the last 12 months. And uh, there's certainly a, a difference between the ages. So those who are younger tend to look for reviews uh, more often. Also differences in who tends to uh, leave reviews. You know, it also is something that tends to be... Reviews tend to be written by uh, those who are younger, although I should point out that most people are not leaving reviews. So the reviews that you do see online tend to be from those who have very extreme opinions. That's why you often see lots of five-star reviews and lots of one-star reviews. Mm. Those who are you know, having an average, mediocre kind of experience with their product, they would probably leave a three-star review, but they can't be you know, motivated to go online and do that. And you, d- you did use actually use a term now I'm referring to an article that you, you wrote. I'm, I'm referring to that article in the, in the conversation. You used a term, it's extreme, extreme. Is that, is that the, 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 the term that you were using? Uh, in what context, sorry? Well, sorry, in the context of uh, people writing, writing the reviews, you were saying that the, they either give it a, a, a really grand uh, acknowledgement or it, you, they, they downgrade it terribly. Yeah, that's right. So most people who are leaving reviews, when I'm talking about this, I mean genuine reviews, they tend to be extreme in that they're positive or negative. But uh, even in the context of a fake review, of course, if you're paying someone to uh, try to benefit your own product or company, you would be paying for very extreme positive reviews in the case of uh, the fraudster leaving fake positive reviews for the, the business itself. Or you can also buy fake reviews and place them on the competition, in which case they would be extremely negative. Mm. And uh, something else that you, uh, I thought was an interesting finding uh, when I was reading your, your piece was this idea of being overconfident or overconfidence. And you refer to something called the Dunning-Kruger effect. Tell us about that. Right. So in many contexts in life, um, people are overconfident, which means that they think they are better than they really are. And detecting fake reviews is certainly one of these cases. So 
Most people indicated that they thought they might be moderately good at detecting fake reviews, but all of the evidence that uh, has been conducted suggests that people are actually very bad at detecting fake reviews. And and so this relates to something called the Dunning-Kruger effect, and that's the two names of uh, the researchers who detected this effect, but basically they show that uh, the worse you are at something, the less likely you are to know that you're so poor at that thing. And as a result, you're unable to evaluate just how good or bad you are. And this seems to be the case with people and their perceptions of how good they are at detecting fake reviews. They're bad, but they, they actually don't know that they don't they're that know that they, they don't actually know that they're that bad at it. Right. Very interesting. And uh, just uh, on, a, on a more personal note, where, how did you get involved in, in uh, uh, well, investigating the, the, the whole world of reviews and fake reviews? I think I'm someone who uses uh, reviews to make decisions, just like a lot of uh, other consumers. And so uh, I guess as a researcher, I was able to go that one step further and dig a little deeper and try to understand exactly where reviews are coming from and how much we can really uh, put our, our faith in them. Mm. And uh, what about the uh, people reading your your uh, your studies um, and, and the work that you're doing? I, I guess you could end up being pretty cynical about these reviews. Yeah, that's right. If you... Uh, if you do only put your faith in reviews, you may be led astray. So I definitely do suggest that consumers uh, look to more than just online reviews. So there are certainly other options, such as uh, Consumer Reports, uh, Choice, uh, CNET. This is where you can read reviews that are left by experts and, and critics. And, of course, you can always speak to your friends and family. These are people that you should definitely have more trust in than strangers who are leaving reviews online. Adrian, uh, I'm going to ask you again a, a, a more personal question. I'm, I'm looking for a computer, a, a, a laptop. So what should I do? <laughs> Where should I go to get advice? Well, you know, when I look for uh, a new laptop, I always head on over to uh, CNET.com. That's my sort of favorite website to, to look for expert reviews. And then uh, one of my favorite uh, Review platforms is uh, productreviews.com.au. They tend to have uh, a lot of information about the, the reviewers, so you can have that information which allows you to evaluate whether you want to trust the review or not that you're reading. Look, it's been really fascinating talking to you, and I wish you all the best with your research and, and keep up the good work, Adrian. And uh, we might chat with you again when you've uh, discovered some other things uh, about fake reviews and, and about, about online purchasing and so on. Certainly. Thank you very much. That was Adrian Camilleri, and he lectures and researches in the area of marketing and consumer psychology at the University of Technology in Sydney. And his article from The Conversation, which I mentioned, is How to Spot a Fake Review. You're probably worse at it than you realize. And all the details will be posted on the Communication Mixdown website. Red Alert. Numbers are needed at the Japurung Heritage Protection Embassy camps immediately. Sacred birthing trees on Japurung country need protecting. Over 50 generations have been born on these sites and the birthing trees themselves are 800 years old. These trees are being protected from the Victorian Labour Party's planned highway extension that is set to destroy this sacred dreaming landscape. 
The campaign to protect country is led by Japarang traditional owners who are calling on people from all walks of life for support. You can help by joining traditional owners at the camp on Japarang country near Ararat or by donating and putting pressure on Daniel Andrews to protect this sacred land. Visit dwembassy.com for more information and updates. No trees, no treaty. You're with Communication Mixdown. And, uh, well, let's assume you've scanned the online reviews, you've picked out the fake ones, you've done your consuming. Now you've developed this incredibly irritating headache that doesn't want to seem that, that doesn't seem to want to go away and you're wondering what's causing it well maybe dr google can provide you with some advice and then again maybe not rachel dunlop is a postdoctoral researcher working between macquarie university in the faculty of medicine and health sciences at sydney and in sydney and the institute of ethnomedicine in jackson hole wyoming I spoke to her by telephone in Jackson Hole about the reliability and trustworthiness of online health information. Thank you very much for being on Communication Mixdown, Rachel. You've written that the sheer volume of online health information now at our fingertips is both a blessing and a curse. And I wanted to start with the curse because you mentioned a couple of online health influencers, if, if I can call them that, who you're very dubious about. And uh, I wanted you to name some names and briefly explain why we should be dubious about their health claims. Sure. Well, hi, John. Thanks for having me. Um, I would say that there are, there are a couple of um, repeat offenders in that area, one being um, Gwyneth Paltrow, who is an actress, not a clinician or qualified medical scientist. And um, she runs a company and a website called Goop, which she sells a lot of things that are extremely overpriced and expensive and uh, pretty much useless. Um, and she's a, a, a very big purveyor of putting things in various orifices <laughs> for no apparent reason and steaming things as well. And there have been recent incidences of people following her advice and steaming their um, genitals, for example, and resulting in serious burns, etc., um, and then closer to home in Australia, there's a, a chef um, who has self-styled himself recently as a um, purveyor of health information, or you might say health misinformation, really. Um, he came under fire a couple of years ago for writing a cookbook where he uh, had a recipe for bone broths for babies, and it turned out that it was so high in uh, vitamin A that it was potentially going to cause the babies to get very sick and possibly even die. Um, eventually it was pulled from the shelves and pulped, but um, that didn't phase this fella, and he's still going, and his uh, Facebook page is extremely popular, and he provides information about all range of things, from cancer to vaccines to, um, you know, uh, diet, which he probably does have some qualifications in, really, mm. but a lot of the information that he puts out on his Facebook page is extremely misleading and potentially very dangerous. And his name? Can we say his uh, name? His name is Chef Pete Evans. Uh, he um, is very well known in Australia because he uh, is on the famous kitchen show called My Kitchen Rules. Mm. So he has a very high profile in Australia for um, his TV stuff. So, but his uh, knowledge of um, health information leaves, leaves a bit to be desired. Mm. You've also noted that the sheer volume of people who are actually using online health information and advice, has it's, it's, a, mass, it's a massive number. Tell us about this. 
Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, there was a, um, a 2018 study that was done in Melbourne, actually, that um, looked at some of the statistics for the amount of Googling that people do these days. And in fact, most people do use Google uh, rather than any other search engine uh, to search for health information. Health information-related searches constitute the second highest thematic search on Google. Um, and, you know, back in 1996, um, only about 1.6% of Australians had internet access at home. Um, and then looking forward to 2015, about 86% of Australians had access. So in Australia, in about 2015, we had roughly 21 million mobile devices uh, circling around and 90,000 terabytes of um, downloads were made in the last quarter of the year of 2015. So we've certainly changed the way that we uh, get our information these days. About four out of five Australians use the internet to source health information and about two-thirds report Googling their symptoms before they would go to the emergency department to seek the advice of a medical professional. So a lot of us are turning to the internet to... Um, self-diagnose or at least to research our symptoms. Now, I want to turn not to the curse but to the blessing because you've talked about this as well and it gets down to something that Google's been doing and they're putting together something which is called Symptom Checker and you tested this. I wondered if you could tell us what happened. Yeah, so um, this is an innovation that Google has had going now for quite a few years and the idea is that if you type in symptoms... Uh, Google will use machine learning to try to uh, correlate those symptoms to a particular disorder. Um, but um, you, you do need to have some exercise, some discretion when you use this function of Google because if you were to type in, for example, a bad back, a headache and a runny nose, uh, which I actually did, um, Google returned the results that I could have had a cold, which is fairly benign, the flu, which is potentially a bit more serious, but also possibly meningitis, for which you'd probably want to get straight to the hospital, or yellow fever. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, that's a fairly wide range of, of possible uh, conditions that you could have just based on those fairly vague symptoms. And that's one of the issues with, you know, some symptoms of medical conditions. They are uh, quite vague and they will, you know, be common to various and, you know, many uh, different conditions. Um, I mean, in that case, I could certainly rule out yellow fever because I hadn't been to any place where yellow fever uh, occurred. Uh, but you, you certainly need to exercise some discretion. Having said that, I, I do think that this, um, this move from Google is a very good idea. Um, the health condition cards will come up on the right-hand side of the page when you type in symptoms. And... As I said, they're using machine learning and they're also using uh, input from Harvard Medical School and the Mayo Clinic in the States to try to, um, yeah, like I said, to, mm. to correlate those symptoms with particular disorders. And then they sort of give you some headlines and offer subheadings and offer you sort of some advice that this is probably what you have. Quick get to hospital now or maybe you, you'll be okay if you, this might be a self-correcting um, you know, clinical thing mm. that you have, so it's probably okay to just take a Bex and lie down. <laughs> that's well. That's that's good advice as well. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, what I was going to ask is, 
I, I've been hearing a lot about this. Um, I, I guess you could call it artificial intelligence in some respects. Do you think, look, this is ju- just maybe a naive question, but is, it, is this something that would eventually replace going to visits to the doctor? Um, you know, I don't think it ever will because, like I said, it's never as simple as you have these five symptoms and it's going to be exactly that disorder. Uh, you know, there's many symptoms that occur um, across different conditions and it's really um, sometimes diagnosing difficult conditions, for example, like Alzheimer's or, say, motor neurone disease, diseases for which there's no uh, specific list of symptoms and there's no kind of blood test to definitely diagnose you, that requires the knowledge, education and, you know, insight of a clinician, um, which is not something that artificial intelligence is uh, probably at a stage of yet. I'm not sure if it'll get there. I mean, one of the things I want to say about, about Google, though, is that they really have tried and they continue to try to filter searches like that so that people do get accurate information where possible. I mean, very, very recently, um, Google has started to um, downrank uh, pages that spread health misinformation. Um, YouTube has started to um, prevent channels that spread misinformation from monetizing their content. Uh, Facebook now no longer lets anti-vaccination groups uh, advertise on their platform. Um, they're also removing anti-vaccination pages from their searches. Um, even Instagram is muting hashtags that relate to vaccine information. So social media is stepping up. Um, they probably took a little bit long to do so, but they are starting to instigate change. Um, and so, you know, it is getting better. I think it's going to, you know, as, you know, there's always ways around things, of mm. course. So, You'll never get rid of all this misinformation. But, you know, on the plus side, um, the study I mentioned before from Melbourne from 2018 actually showed that when patients Google their condition or their symptoms before they see a doctor, that actually has a positive impact on the doctor-patient interaction in the end. Um, And that's because um, the patient generally feels more confident when they see the doctor and they're less likely to question the diagnosis or the advice that they're given if it matches up with what they themselves found online. So, you know, there's good sides and bad sides to Dr. Google. Yeah, and I guess this, uh, my, my final question would be, if what would be your advice to anyone using Symptom Checker or these kind, this kind of online information when they were searching for health-related mm. information? Yeah, I mean, this is the $64,000 question, isn't it? Um, obviously, you have to exercise a degree of skepticism and discretion um, if you come across a page where the person providing the information is also selling something that's going to cure that at the same time, uh, they probably have a vested interest and so potentially just be a bit sceptical about what they're telling you. Um, if their occupation is, for example, an actress or a chef and they're telling you mm-hmm. what to do about your cancer, perhaps you should seek advice from somewhere else. Um, you know, there are... Uh, institutions that are reputable. For example, I mentioned Harvard and the Mayo Clinic. They're obviously American pages, uh, but they do provide accurate information. Um, Government websites, although people are suspicious of the government, they do do their best to provide accurate health information. So, you know, VicGov or 
um, even just the Australian government websites will provide that kind of information. So, you know, try to find sources that you think are reputable, um, sources that are probably not selling something at the same time. If it seems too good to be true, it probably mm-hmm. is. Um, and mm. also, you know, the maverick kind of um, person who's sort of like, I'm the only one who was able to cure this disease by going to the Amazon mm. and I found a special berry with the indigenous people and just me by myself. Science and medicine requires collaborations with lots of different people across different disciplines to arrive at a potential therapy. Um, and so it's unlikely that a person has found this in their back shed in Townsville. Mm. But, you know, if you see something like that on a current affair, it's probably not going to work. I'm not saying it won't, just saying be just you know, exercise discretion and be sceptical. That was Rachel Dunlop, and she researches health and the communication of health science information, and she splits her time between the Faculty of Medicine and Health Sciences at Macquarie University and the Institute of Ethnomedicine in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. We'll put all the links and the information up on the Communication Mixdown website. That's all from us this week. Thanks to our guests once again, Adrian Camilleri and Rachel Dunlop. We'll be back next Monday. Let's go out with some musical health advice from Dr. Henrik Weingren. The track's called Never Google Your Symptoms. One evening my father said, my son... I'm dying and soon I'll be gone But before my final farewell Hear me and hear me well Do whatever you want to do Have a plan or roll the dice But one thing is strictly taboo Please follow my advice Never Google your symptoms That is my only prescription you get a hundred diagnoses, a medieval prognosis Every sign is a serious condition If you Google cough and diagnosis You have got tuberculosis And if you Google fever and red You've got Ebola and soon will be dead And if you Google either runny nose It's CSF, your brain is leaking juice And if you Google itch and prognosis Anaphylactic shock or psychosis Never Google your symptoms Seldom it brings any wisdom You want to discover but you might uncover That you have an extra chromosome So this is what I heard my father say And then he closed his eyes and passed away The autopsy report was very clear Death from hypochondric fear Which is custom when you Google your symptoms Never Google your symptoms The hit list is never awesome Pain in your left arm, heart attack alarm Do you feel a little weak? Yes, you've got ALS If you have a slight anemia, you've got loose.
Got ADHD, so never ever Google your symptoms.